Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. All right, good morning, class. I'll give everyone a second to turn to Romans, same place, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and then we will pray. Okay, let us all pray. Precious Lord, we thank you for the gift of life and for the privilege and the opportunity to, as a communal body, worship and exalt you by earnest meditation and study of your word. We entreat you, Divine Father, send the Spirit to open our minds, to open our eyes, and to illuminate our hearts, to remove any scales of misunderstanding that you, Divine Spirit, will truly and earnestly teach us your word and reveal to us how that animates our characters and our walk with you day by day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're still focusing our attention on Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and that text says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, there are three things that I want to go over from last time that I just want to draw some acute emphasis on. The first is that I spoke about when Paul says a bondservant of Christ Jesus, that comes from a word in Greek, doulos, which means slave. And we talked about reclaiming that word and reclaiming the slave-slave-master relationship in the context of our walk with God. And the final thing I'm going to mention about that is this. When we are a doulos or when we are a bondservant of Christ Jesus, we are the ones that get all the benefits. We are a doulos, yes, but we reap grace upon grace, spiritual benefit upon spiritual benefit. Because what does the overall narrative of the Bible tell us? That the way up is down. That the way God picks us up is when we come down in humility, in obedience, in service. So on the one hand, we are a slave to God, and we are not free to serve anyone else. However, God made us, Isaiah 43, 7, for his glory. So when we now are a doulos of God and are in service and humility to him, that servitude is the most gratifying, is the most contenting, is the most uplifting thing that we can do with our lives. Because coming down low in service means now we are fulfilling our God-designed purpose. And now what? Now we're filled with joy. Now we're filled with delight. And in being a, a, a servant or a slave to anything else in life, there is no other route or means by which we will have the eternal whole filled in our hearts because the way up is down. The way to peace, the way to joy, the way to reconciliation is through humble service and being a doulos. The second thing 
is we talked about a divine call. We talked about the general call and the effective or the effectual call. And the one thing that I forgot to mention is this, that a divine call is absolutely critically necessary to enter into divine service. Those who are doing what is faithful, those who are doing what is sincere in service to God and his people must be called first. And that's important to realize because there are plenty of individuals who were never called and who are serving. Which means in whatever fabricated calling that is, they're not actually serving God because God never drew them there in the first place. They're serving men, they're serving public opinion, or they're serving themselves. themselves. Now, here's the question I have for the class this morning. If God effectually calls you to a particular thing, to teaching, to evangelism, to helps, to mercies, is the ultimate barometer of if that call is valid or not your own internal subjective experience of that call. So, for example, let's make it plain. If someone were to walk up to any leader in the church, anywhere in the world, and say, pastor, teacher, minister, I feel like God called me to be leader of this church. Is that internal subjective experience of things the ultimate barometer if God called that person or not? No. So someone who said no, explain to me why. Amen. Sister Gwen says, sometimes, essentially, we can delude ourselves. And of everything in the Christian walk, our faith is based upon facts. It's based upon history. It's based upon a real person who died on a real cross and shed real blood for real sins. So in general, the ultimate barometer of what's subjectively true is never my own personal subjective experience. In the office, for example, all the time, people say things like, Doctor, I feel like I'm pregnant. Or they say things like, I feel like my blood pressure is high. That's not the ultimate barometer of truth. What is the ultimate barometer is an objective validation, as in a urine pregnancy test, as in someone actually measuring your blood pressure. So there's an internal call that can be externally validated. So guess who can externally validate an internal call? The church can. Because if someone's called to sing, if someone's called to teach, if someone's called to evangelize, guess what they're going to be good at? Singing, teaching, evangelizing, which means God puts his spirit in the hearts of God's people, and now God's people can externally validate and discern God's call in one of God's servants. Just like when someone's born again, if someone says I'm saved, that could be true. It also could not. How can we tell? By their fruits. Internal change with external validation. Good. And the final thing I'll say about calling is this. 
to be biblically precise, a call is always made by the first member of the Godhead, God the Father. So, as Jesus says in John 644 uh, and John 17.6, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father first calls them. So calling is a Trinitarian work in that God the Father calls. That calling is made effectual by the Holy Spirit who now turns us to Christ, who now bridges the gap between us and God the Father. Closes a loop. Good. So that's going to cover everything I forgot to mention last time. We're going to continue now our discussion of the idea of calling. Now, in Romans 8.30, which we're going to discuss later when we get to Romans chapter 8, that talks about what the Reformers like to call the golden chain of salvation, which says those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. So in the middle of that process, we have calling. Now, the thing I want to draw your attention to is this. Calling is something that happens here and now in our natural lives. God foreknows and he predestines certain people before they are even born. God does nothing on the fly. Everything happens according to God's sovereign plan. So I'm making this distinction because our calling happens acutely during our natural lives, our lives, but God knowing us and God predestining us to salvation happens before we are born. So, in the case of Paul, who we're studying, God knew before Paul was even born that Paul ultimately would be God's. But Paul spent the first part of his life acting against God's purposes. Then what happens at a particular point in his natural earthly life, he is called and then everything changes. His heart is now turned, and now he begins fulfilling all of those purposes that God had predestined. And the only point is that there's foreknowledge, there's predestination, which is in the mind of God prior to our natural births, but then calling happens during our natural lives. And whenever Paul uses the term calling in Romans in general, He's always referring to the effectual calling. So when Paul says someone who is called, he's referring to someone in which that call has been effectual. And they positively responded to Jesus Christ in faith. So Paul was called as what? As an apostle. Now, someone tell me, What's an apostle? Just simple, plain language. Just tell me. To preach the gospel? Incorrect. Because I can do that in the next 20 minutes, but I'm not an apostle, right? 
but there's a specific definition for what an apostle is. A messenger of God, more precise than that, an apostle is someone who is sent. So apostle comes from the Greek, word, Greek root apostolos, which refers to a messenger who is sent. But more specific than that, an apostle is someone who is sent by whom? By Jesus Christ himself. But even more than that, there's someone who is sent by Jesus Christ and sent to do what? On a mission as a fully authorized ambassador of Christ Jesus himself. In the, in the ancient world in which Romans was written, you would have kings who were doing king stuff. They were sitting on a throne, managing affairs. People would come to them. But if a king wanted to send a message to someone, and that message was to have power, or that message was to have authority, what the king would now do is send that messenger to place XYZ. That messenger would now arrive in that place and say, hear ye, hear ye, I bring a message from our king. And then someone would say, hey, so-and-so, why should we listen to you? And then that messenger would now say, I do not come on my own authority, but my words, my message are backed by the king. So when I speak this message to you, they're actually the king's words, which he has handed off to me. So when the Bible speaks about apostles, it speaks about those messengers who are sent by God himself, but they are now imbued with the message which has authority of the king of kings. The, messages, the message they are now communicating, it's not Peter's message, it's not John's message, it's not Paul's message. It's a message that has been communicated and bears the authority, the exousia, the thrust of Christ himself. That is what makes the apostolic message so potent and so valuable. This is why when Jesus selected the apostles, it was such a grandiose big deal. No, God knew that the men which he would subsequently choose would bear a large burden and responsibility. Realize, Jesus, God himself, prayed all night. God himself prayed all night before choosing the original apostles. That tells us something. This is what Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 13 says. It was at this time that he, Jesus, went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor." 
So someone tell me, how many apostles originally were there? Twelve. Then what happened? Judas took himself out. Now we're down to 11. Then how many apostles subsequently were there? Technically speaking, the, the Bible says we began with 12. Judas is eliminated. And then you have Matthias who was chosen and then Paul. So now you have 13, which matches the original 12 tribes of Israel. But remember, Joseph's tribe was split into Ephraim and Manasseh. So the 13 in the Old Testament matches the 13 in the New Testament with the apostles. Now, God did not choose the apostles at random. There were actually requirements, meaning Jesus did not one day have a hat of names and go cover his eyes and say, Oh, John, I'm going to choose him. Didn't work like that. The Bible says there's a, there's a specific criterion that God used to choose apostles. There are actually three. Can someone tell me what one of them is? There are three requirements to be an apostle. Can someone tell me what any one of those three are? So one we already mentioned... They had to be chosen by Jesus because our passage from Luke that we just read basically says Jesus prayed all night and then he, not anybody else, not Caesar, not a guy in the street, he chose the apostles. The other has to do with training and experience. And when I say training and experience... I mean all of the apostles were disciples of Christ during his earthly ministry, meaning they sat under his teaching, were instructed by God, they heard his parables, they asked him questions, and they were all literal eyewitnesses when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Because... If you're going to be an apostle who has a message, God wants to make sure that message had some content, some substance behind it. Hence, all the apostles were educated by the God-man himself, Jesus. What's the third requirement? Number one is external, chosen by Jesus. Number two is internal, training and experience. The third requirement for being an apostle is also external. So someone could actually tell someone was really an apostle. At the gate beautiful, Peter did something blank to someone who was afflicted. He did a? Right. Signs or wonders, right? So if there's an external validation. So Jesus now would imbue the apostles who were sent with the ability to perform signs and wonders so there was an external validation. So again, if an apostle gave a message and someone said, hey, so-and-so, Peter, why should I listen to you? Someone could now rely on the sign or the miraculous wonder they saw to validate the message the apostle was relaying. So we're going to have apostolic signs. Okay. 
Excellent point. So, you had more to your question or no? No, I was going to say it's, it's kind of like a function of the first one. Like, I, I, back then, you couldn't just randomly do a miracle. So they had to be chosen by Jesus. Exactly. And you hit on the perfect point that God's plan always makes perfect, rational, logical sense. So he chooses people who were trained by him and then imbues those people that he chose and that he trained with his, uh, with certain miraculous um, abilities to validate his message. It starts with God, it ends with God. Okay, so requirement number one is that the call to be an apostle had divine origin, and that's what we just read in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. Now, before I move on to the second requirement, I first have to mention this. When we're talking about the Apostle Paul, let's just zoom out for a second and, and embrace this Bible fact. Paul began his life as the man called Saul, as the man working against God's purposes. If you were an eyewitness of Saul's ministry when he was murdering believers, no rational, logical human being would say, this guy would ever be an apostle. It wouldn't make any sense. But God's plans often go far above our heads and far above our understanding. So, when Jesus meets Paul on his road to Damascus and calls him, now everything in the man called Saul's life changes. And because his call to be an apostle had a divine origin, that now equipped and enabled the man called Saul to become Paul, and the entire course of his life now changes. Had Jesus not called Saul, he would never have been the Apostle Paul. And I say all that to re-emphasize over and over and over again to be an apostle, that calling must have, number one, a divine origin. Number two, to be an apostle, it relates to your training and experience, meaning you were a disciple of Christ and an eyewitness of the resurrection. So, in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, when Judas hanged himself, the apostle said, we now have to choose someone to take his place. What criteria did they use? They prayed, they looked back to Psalm 109 and used a prior Old Testament scripture to guide them on what to do, but they said, we have to choose someone who was with us while Jesus was alive and who saw him after he resurrected because being an apostle required uh, a degree of training under Jesus and being an eyewitness because... This makes perfect logical sense. If someone were to go out and tell other people about Jesus, it makes perfect sense that they saw him, that they ate with him, that they were, ta that they were taught by him, and when he rose from the dead, an apostle could now go to a foreign land and say, yes, I with my own eyes saw Jesus. As the apostle John writes, what we heard with our own ears, what we saw with our own eyes, what we touched with our own hands. Now, here's a question to make everyone think. 
were all the disciples apostles? No. Were all the apostles disciples? Yes. Okay. Make sure we all have clarity. A dis- anyone could have been a disciple, right? A disciple basically meant Jesus was alive. You followed him around. You took notes. You said, teacher, rabbi, teach us, inform me. That's a disciple. They're a follower. They're a learner. They're a student. But Jesus now specifically chooses from the disciples those who would be apostles. So when the Bible says the 12 disciples and it means the 12 apostles, it's not contradicting itself. It's not lying because the apostles were disciples. However, being a disciple does not necessarily mean you were an apostle. No one knows for sure how many disciples there were. Some Bible scholars say there were 70. Some say there were hundreds. We don't know for sure. All we do know is that amongst that cohort, God chose 12 to be apostles. Being a disciple simply means that the apostles were taught by Christ himself. They could therefore bear testimony to what they saw and heard. Requirement number three. What does it require to be an apostle? The third requirement, which is external, is having been given apostolic authority, which was validated by miracles. Meaning... The apostles could now go out, having been sent by God, having been imbued with authority, and that authority given by God was now validated by apostolic signs and wonders. And as always the case in the Bible, the miracle is not an end in and of itself. The miracle validates the message. Because, what does church history tell us? There were real disciples, which means there were also imposters. There were fake disciples. You had guys who would say, hey, I was a disciple. I was chosen by God. God sent me. But they couldn't prove it because they did not have the ability to perform signs and wonders as given by Christ himself. So God never wanted anyone to deny their senses, but he allowed his messengers that message to be validated by only power that he could give. And let us also not forget, once again, these apostles who were sent were imbued with authority so that when they went to uh, new areas and founded churches, when they went to new areas and selected men who would be elders and pastors of churches, these were men who were given the authority by Christ himself to do so. So let's back this up with scripture. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Why is it a command? Because Paul was imbued with apostolic authority. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, the apostles, 
you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe, 2 Corinthians 10.8. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. Now here are the sign verses, 2 Corinthians 12.12. The signs, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Last verse, Acts 14.3. So they, Paul and company, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So, To be an apostle, three requirements. Divine calling by Christ himself, training and experience, being a disciple of Christ during his earthly ministry, being an eyewitness of his resurrection, and then number three, having been given authority externally validated by signs and wonders to those who were sent. Now that'll end where we finish this morning. Before we pray, are there any questions? Yes. So the question is, how did the crowd respond to Paul? And the best answer is violently. Paul's a man who had a very, very tough life, where if you read his epistles, his letter to different churches, he spends a lot of time either validating that he's an apostle and overall does a lot of correcting. Because as you intelligently said, many people said, you used to be a guy who was working against Christ, so why are you now working in service to the kingdom of God? So the broadest overall answer is people responded to Paul either with spiritual violence or physical violence because they tended to reject his letter. Only really in the letter to the Philippians, to the Philippian church, when Paul was in jail, does he actually not have a rebuke or have a defensive tone to his letter? He rather just rejoices in who they are and what they have done, and they mutually encourage one another in that letter, in that, the uh, epistle. I'm smiling. You know why? Because your mind is working. You're thinking. You're putting things together. And everything you just said is completely and totally valid because... If we use these three criteria, the question now becomes, especially, how does the Apostle Paul fit in to the schema? Because it would seem as if, using these requirements, Paul does not fit. And that's next time. Yes? He's someone who did great wonders, who wasn't an apostle. And the reason why is simple. Stephen's calling was not apostolic. Stephen's calling was to martyrdom. Now, here's the key thing to understand, right? People say, oh my goodness, how could Stephen die? But immediately after Stephen dies, what now happens? 
people spread. So in a sense, in so, sort of a sense, Stephen's martyrdom kind of sets the stage for the apostolic era to begin because people were staying, they weren't going. Okay, let's pray. Precious Lord, we thank you for the time we have spent with your word. We thank you for the hungerness, the eagerness, and the intellectual engagement and the wrestling with your pages of Holy Scripture. We just entreat you, O Lord, to inflame our hearts as we go home this week. We meditate on, study, and begin probing your word, seeking a fuller and fuller relationship and disclosure of you so your light may shine upon our hearts and your light may illuminate our minds. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.